You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Today's Palm Sunday. It's the day that we reflect and remember on that time uh, when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. There's a lot of shouting, a lot of cheering. Um, in fact, Matthew chapter 21, it, he says this. It says, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So it was a festive day. It was a big day, a lot of exciting things going on. Here's the irony of that moment. While all this was going around and while all the people were shouting and celebrating and, and, and giving glory to Jesus, Jesus knew that he was riding to his death. The contrast, I can imagine, in the emotions were just stark. And I, I, I got to wonder, for Jesus, this really wasn't a moment of celebration. For him... In fact, it actually tells us in Luke 21, it says that when Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and ham you in on every side. Jesus knew that some of these very people who were shouting and celebrating and being joyous today would be shouting and hurling accusations and insults at him while he was hanging on the cross just days ahead. Jesus knew that things were really messed up. Things haven't really changed that much in the 2,000 years since then, have they? People are still pretty messed up. We live in a fallen world. It's full of sin, full of evil. And if history has shown us anything, it's that we can't fix our problems on our own. We can't. We try. We, we just continue to make it worse, actually. And at the root of all of it is this. We are separated from God. And we have no solution for our sin problem. There's a separation from God that we can't fix, that we can't bridge on our own. Until we consider the cross. Until the cross comes into the conversation, we really have no hope. We really have no way to even know how to think about it. The cross is a paradox. What was a place of rejection, pain, and death has brought us acceptance, brought us gain, and brought us life. What appeared to be the end really became the beginning for us when it comes to our relationship with God. Our passage this morning comes from Colossians chapter 2. And if uh, you can follow along, um, actually just a couple verses. Let's read this together. Should we do that? So let's, uh, we'll, we'll read out loud together here from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this day that we 
We do celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into the city and what a day of recognition that was because certainly he is worthy of that praise and adoration. At the same time, we're very conscious of what was about to happen, what was going to be occurring in the days. And while that seeming tragedy and defeat and death, uh, Lord, just seemed to be overwhelming the end of things, Lord, really was our beginning. So, Lord, as we dig a little deep this morning as to the cross and why it played such a central role for us. Lord, I just ask you to help us to have understanding, uh, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, whatever our point of need is this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For us, as followers of Jesus Christ, it doesn't end at the cross. It begins at the cross. That's where everything begins for us. Why the cross, though? What is it about it that makes that so significant? A few thoughts. One, the cross is a place where God's love is revealed. Now, what would cause someone to give their life for someone else? And I've thought about this a little bit, and there's, there's a couple reasons. I, I can identify two. There may, you may be coming up with additional ones. But one is that you might sacrifice your life for a noble cause. We see this quite often in military conflicts where someone will sacrifice their life for their comrades, for the people on. They, they know that in that context that their death will allow them to live. And people have done that. That is part that, So there's a noble cause. There's a higher purpose by which someone might sacrifice their life for someone else, for a greater good. The other one is love. And you especially think about this for those of, of you who might be parents and have children, you don't really have to think much about, you know, would I do something for them? Would I even give my life if it meant that they would be saved? There's love. It's, it's not necessarily this noble ideal. It's much more of a passion. It's a love that you would you'd do anything for your children, even give your own life. So the, for me, the question is, all right, what motivated Jesus? What was it? What motivated him to give his life? He willingly rode into town on that donkey. He knew what was coming, and he did it anyways. What was his motivation? And I don't think it was because of a noble cause. Even though it was God's plan, and I understand all that, I don't think he was doing it because of some higher purpose. In fact, Scripture says just the opposite. Scripture is very clear and says he did it because of love. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even, even at that point in time, Paul and the other writers in the New Testament recognized that love was the motivation for Jesus. He loved us. And knowing that this would solve this problem of the separation, this gap that we had with God, would solve it not just then but for all time as well. He did it out of love. Because of love, Jesus allowed the Roman soldiers to nail him to the cross. It was love that kept him on the cross, not the nails. Richard Foster, I love uh, the quote. I actually think it's in your outline there. It says, love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Jesus knew that by his vicarious suffering, he could actually absorb all the evil of humanity and so heal it, forgive it, and redeem it. The cross is a place where God's love is revealed. 
Another thought. The cross is also a place of substitution where sin is atoned for. I'm not happy with the grammar, the way that sentence was written, but uh, they didn't listen to me. And I said, really, you're going to write your sentence anyway. So uh, this is one of those, it was, it's much easier to talk about God's love. We get that. This is a theological ideal. It's not as easy to talk about because it's, it's a conceptual idea. Not that it's any less real. Not that it's not, it's, but it's just harder to talk about and to discuss. The idea of atone, the idea that our sins have been atoned, is, is this idea that to atone, for, to atone for something means to cover it or to release it or to resolve, in most cases, a debt. There's a debt that's owed and you, you solve it, you, recover, you, uh, you cover over that debt, you resolve it but it's removed. It no longer exists. And so that's what's talking about with sin. Our sin is removed. It's no longer there. It's been covered. But how does someone else's death 2,000 years ago atone for my sins today? How does all that work? And the concept just doesn't translate well to a 21st century Western culture. See, we have this misguided notion of sin and evil, that there really is no absolute truth. There really is no wrong. In fact, it's worse to tell someone they're wrong than to actually be wrong. Um, And this idea that all paths lead to God. And so we have, we live in a culture where to talk about something like atonement, like that we have been separated from God and that we do need a savior, it's just so countercultural. It's just so across the paradigm of what people think. It really is hard for many people to even comprehend what words we're talking about. We think that heaven, quite often within our culture, that heaven is the default for all people. And that hell, this eternal separation from God, is only for bad people. But what we know is that actually hell is the default. And only by Jesus Christ has we been redeemed, has that sin been atoned. So I thought long and hard about how I might explain this without using theological terms or churchy language. And I have a couple examples that might might help. Um, One might be as if my son, let's just say if I had an adolescent uh, son um, who stole a bike, and as he was riding it and jumping things, and things broke it, bike got broke. As his parent, I'm responsible. And so I would be expected to make some restitution of some sort. So whether or not I bought this other child whose bike was stolen, I'd buy this child a new bike, I replace that bike, but there would be something that would have to atone for that, that theft. And, and replace that bike. Because of my son's age, however, there might not be any consequences for him. You know, there may, I mean, he and I would obviously, there would be consequences. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Beyond that, there would be, there's nothing, society doesn't necessarily demand that there be consequences for that. So, so let's, let's, let's raise the bar a little bit. Let's just say now my son is 25, <clears throat> and he breaks into a store after hours and steals whatever's there, let's just say some electronic equipment or whatever. Now there's much broader implications, aren't there? 
Because even if his dad, even if I went to the store owner and I paid to have the window replaced or the door replaced that was broken to get entry, and I replaced all the material goods and everything there, there's still this idea of justice. You know, for a 25-year-old, there's a sense of accountability that if nothing happens to him, we are left with this feeling like, where's the justice in this, that he just gets off scot-free? There are no ramifications for this. It would just feel like there's something missing, there's something not right there. There needs to be a penalty. So let me take it up even a higher notch. Let me do it this way. Suppose a drug-addicted man breaks into a home and kills the homeowner who's trying to keep him from stealing from him. Now, the expectation would be that the man would pay for his crime by going to prison, and maybe with his very life if he lives in a state that has the death penalty, but that there would be some payment, there would be some sense of, of atonement for the crime that was committed. Justice would not be served unless someone paid for that crime. Which means that if I were then to say, listen, I will step in, I will take this man's place. So even though I didn't break in, I didn't kill anybody, I will take his place. So now it's still the sense of he's still guilty, he's still deserving of punishment, but from the sense of justice to society, the price has been paid. Someone paid that price, even if it wasn't the one who committed the crime. So it's a much broader idea of justice and how it's conveyed and how it was happened because someone paid a price. Someone was punished for this crime. Without some form of punishment, there is no sense of justice. So as Christ followers, our belief is that the crime against God was committed back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And because of their sins, all future humanity was infected, and justice could not allow the holiness of God and the sin of humanity to coexist. We were doomed to eternal separation from God. That's what hell is. It's the eternal separation from him. Um, So that's my best attempt at trying to convey a theological term in ways that we can understand. I've discovered, however, that uh, C.S. Lewis is much better at conveying this idea. So this is clip day. uh, Usually we'll have weeks and no videos. Today we got three. Um, I've got a little clip I want you to watch. It's, it's this, and let me set it up for you. So it's the Chronicles of Narnia, and this one is from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of the, um, the three children, one of the, the youngest son, I just lost his name. Edmund, thank you. You're all, okay. Um, has basically betrayed Aslan and the rest, and now he's guilty, and the queen, the Satan image, now comes and, and lays claims that he now belongs to me. Watch the exchange here that goes on if, if you can. Did we get it, John? Did we get it? Okay. My name is Philip. Oh, sorry. The witch has demanded a meeting with Aslan. She's on her way here. The Queen of Narnia!
You have a traitor in your midst, Aslan. His offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was built? Do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. Then you'll remember well that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is my property. Try and take him then. Do you really think that mere force will deny me my right? Aslan knows that unless I have blood as the law demands, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. That boy will die on the stone table. As is tradition. You dare not refuse me. Enough. I shall talk with you alone. She has renounced her claim on the son of Adam's blood. How do I know your promise will be kept? cool movie but uh, <laughs> Paul talks about it later on he says in Romans chapter 5 he says just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners so also through the obedience of the one man the many were made righteous it's a pretty big deal in fact, Paul talks about this and reshapes that same statement in different ways in three of his other letters. So in four of the books of the New Testament, Paul makes this statement. In Colossians, he says, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In Corinthians, he said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And then in 1 Peter, he says, For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. The cross was a place where God's love is revealed. The cross is a place of substitution where sin is atoned for. And the cross is a place where Satan and death were defeated. Colossians tells us, again, Paul's writing, it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The cross was the place where victory was completed. It wasn't just the idea of, of, it's not just the atonement of our sins. It's the victory over death. Everything, Satan, the one who accused us and the one who literally is seeking to destroy us has been defeated. Not only were we redeemed and restored to right relationship with God, the power, Satan, that the power that sought our own demise in the first place was also rendered powerless. Just like it was portrayed in this video, Satan can no longer lay claim to your life. He no longer controls your destiny. Your life, your future, your eternal existence now belongs to God. My last thought in this idea is this. The cross was a place of torment that brought us peace. Again, in Colossians, Paul writes, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I got to ask you, are you at peace with God today? Although what Jesus did solves the problem for all of us, we still, have to, we still have to accept that gift. It's freely given. There's no strings attached, except it requires everything. You have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You have to stop trying to live life on your own terms. The irony is that although Jesus has done all that needs to be done to restore us to a right relationship with God, the human tendency is to try to live life on our own terms, to live life our own way. And instead of surrendering our life to him, we think we can do it better ourselves. Are you at peace with God today? You can be. Maybe today's your day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, the, the irony of the contrast between this day of celebration, this day of joyous uh, rejoicing of when Jesus entered the city, contrasting with the cross that was coming ahead. Father, it's just such a stark contrast. Father, 
but we have relationship with you today not because of the celebration. We have relationship with you because of the cross. The sin that existed, that permeated all of humanity, that was preexistent in all of us, that price has been met. Justice has been served. Father, you have done all that needs to be done for us to be redeemed, to be restored in relationship with you again. All we must do is accept it. Father, I ask that if there's some here this morning that are struggling with that, maybe they've done that in the past, but the enemy continues to challenge them and to sow seeds of doubt, continues to point out their faults, their failures, their mistakes, their imperfections as a means of trying to nullify their, their justification before you. Father, may they recognize that as a lie literally from the pit of hell. Lord, there's nothing more we can do today that can cause you to love you any less than you already do. There's nothing we can do today that can cause you to love us any more than you already do. Father, you love us totally and completely. And Father, if there's any here who maybe they've been trying to live life their own way on their own terms, and are at that point now where they're ready to surrender and to say, God, I don't have all the answers. I don't even necessarily understand what this looks like, but God, I want to give my life to you. I want to surrender my life to you to receive that gift of redemption, of healing and wholeness. Father, may they take that step. May they say that prayer. Lord, even this morning, I pray. Father, we are people that are deeply indebted to you. But Father, we don't walk around with guilt and shame. We walk around knowing that our Heavenly Father has paid an incredible price for us and because he loves us. May, that we, may we be confident in that love this day. Father, may we trust you in all areas of our life, knowing that we are your children knowing that you love us, you care for us. Lord, you haven't brought us to this point in life just to say, all right, you're on your own. You've done good. All right, Uh, I'm done with you. Father, you continue to work in us and through us till the day we die, until the time where we join you for all eternity. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord God, that... uh, that we can be with you for all eternity. But not just that, but that we can walk with you here on earth as well. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.